0: So with that, uh, just turn to Zechariah 8. I'm going to read uh, verses 14 through 23 for us this morning, and Asha was going to come up and share from this passage. So Zechariah eight, fourteen through 23. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, So again, I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore love, truth, and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Peoples shall yet come, even though the inhabitants of many even the inhabitants of many cities the inhabitants of one city shall go to another saying let us go at once to entreat the favor of the lord and to seek the lord of hosts i myself am going many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the lord of hosts in jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the lord Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. This is the word of the Lord. Amen.
1: Thank you, Mackenzie. Hey, good morning. My name's Oshawa. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. If you're a guest with us... So, so awesome to have you here. I want to welcome you. Um, we've been in this Advent season, spending some time in the prophet of Zechariah. Um, if you had a hard time finding it in your Bible, it's kind of uh, near the end of the Old Testament. Basically, just a few, uh, couple books right before uh, the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to be in, in chapter 8 uh, this morning, as Mackenzie shared. Um, if you're new and just joining us, just quick context, quick background, um, and that connects it to our, our world today is that this, this prophecy uh, is probably happening about 518 BC. And the people of Israel, they had, they had turned from God, they had uh, abused the widow and the orphan, and, and had lived in ways that were, were not just. And they had not practiced the Sabbath. They had not followed God's, uh, his law, his Torah, the way he established for them to live. And, and so he disciplined them. He, he sent them into captivity um, in the land of Babylon. And this was a, a, a period of great suffering for God's people, of a great confusion, a kind of a crisis of faith for them. Um, and they ended up staying there about 70 years and during that time, they had these prophecies. They had God sent messengers both before and during that period to encourage them and say, say, God will bring you back. He will bring the Messiah. He will bring a, the, the chosen one who will conquer your enemies and restore you to the land, rebuild this, the beautiful temple that was destroyed. And that was their hope. And they put their hope there. And then what happened is uh, the Babylonian Empire, and you can, you can study this in your secular history books as well, was conquered and overthrown by the Persian Empire. And the, the Persian king had a little different kind of political policy for his, uh, the different nations that, that he overthrew and controlled, and, and he wanted to allow the people of Israel to go back into their land and even rebuild their temple. And so he allows them to go back. And and so there's a sense in which God's people have have seen some of the promises fulfilled, right? They're not in captivity. They're in their land. They've even started building the the temple, and yet they're still under foreign occupation. They still haven't seen the Messiah come to them. And there's this this sense in which which the kingdom has arrived for for them, and yet it's still out there. And so it's similar in uh, in the same way that, that we celebrate Advent. Right? So we we celebrate the first coming of Jesus. And for for us as followers of Christ, it's made all the difference in the world. And yet we still experience brokenness. We still experience suffering. We're still waiting for his promised second coming and advent. And so that's where we jump into chapter eight. And these people had asked, they'd gone up to the the priests and prophets and said, basically, should we keep fasting? Should we keep mourning the destruction of the temple? Or, since the temple has started and we're back in the land, can we start celebrating? Can we stop this mourning and, and start kind of uh, living into these joyful promises? And we're going to get a, a, a little sense of the answer to that question in this chapter. And there's three, three main ideas that I see in this text that we're going to look at. First, the things that make for peace. Then the joy that comes from God's peace, and finally, how we share joy to the world, how we share that joy that we've found with the world. And so, spoiler alert, where we're heading as we, as we go through this passage is basically that as God's people live out the peace and joy that they have in Jesus, the world will see it and kind of basically say I don't know what they're having, but I want a pint of it too, right? They're gonna look, look out and say, whoa, there's, some, there's a party going on, there's a celebration going on. Something that these people have make them in incredibly peaceful, present, like secure people in the midst of a, a just total messed up, jacked up world, and they have joy. They're enjoying God in, this, in their community. I want something of that. I want to see what that is. So that's, that's where we're going. But before, before we get there, we have to work on our own hearts, right? How do we find that peace? How do we cultivate that joy? And so first, the things that make for peace. In verse 16, it says this. He says, he says these things you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true, and make for peace. And so, we have this idea of peace. Now, in English, we usually think of peace as in the contrast between like wartime and peacetime, right? That we don't have major conflict. But for the biblical worldview, the word of uh, for peace is shalom. It describes something that is just so beyond just like the, the lack of conflict. So here's probably the best quote I've ever read on, on what biblical peace is. And it's from uh, the philosopher Cornelius Plantinga Jr. He just says this. He says, in the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Shalom is the way things ought to be. Right? That sounds awesome, doesn't it? Right? We, we want that, but how do we get that? What are those things that make for peace? And I would argue and a lot of even kind of secular, um, uh, those secular psychologists that study our culture and look in at the phenomenon of the Western society today would agree with me that we pursue paths that we think bring peace, and they really mess us up um, <laughs> in the meantime. There's a, uh, a recent book called The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. It's written by Greg Lukanoff and Jonathan Haidt. If you're not familiar with it, it's based on a, you can kind of read the Cliff Notes version. It's a, a short article in The Atlantic that they turned into a book. And basically, they, they study society at large, and this is the conclusion that they come to. They say, we have unwittingly taught a generation of students the mental habits of anxious, depressed, polarized people. And we need to rethink everything in our society from parenting to K-12 through education and to our, our higher education university system. Because all of it sets young people up to be anxious, depressed, polarized people. And they, they, they study the, the stats and basically show that that our society is more anxious is, and has more depression than any time in recent modern history. And as they go through, they look at, like, kind of the, the college setting and the issues of, like, uh, microaggressions and uh, the idea of trigger statements on college campuses and, and these rules that, that are set up to avoid anyone being offended by anything. And this is the path that our society sets for peace is avoid all offense. Avoid anything that could make you feel insecure or not okay with yourself. And what these, these social psychologists are looking in and saying, he's saying, actually, trying to protect people from, from their fears, it actually perpetuates those fears so that we never confront them and they never go away. And we never learn to be people that cope with trouble. Who, who face our fears. And so they, they, they say this, and how this leads even to the polarization of our society. You see, someone that disagrees with me is no longer just someone who has a different view, right? It's no longer just a different perspective or a different side of the political um, like hallway or a different religious perspective. Now, ideas and values and the speech of the other side are not just seen as wrong, but they're willfully aggressive towards innocent victims. And and if every different perspective is viewed as as like a violent aggression to my own kind of peaceful serenity that's extremely fragile, how do you actually develop a society of, of genuine diversity? How do you actually have a society where you can... Agree to disagree, where you can, where you can find consensus in the midst of, of differing opinions, and they go back and even look at the kind of the root of the problem, because you know I think it's, it's easy maybe for some of the older generation to look look at the, at millennials perhaps and say oh yeah yeah millennials are so anxious and they're so and the uh, yeah there's these issues and all this stuff and and well actually <laughs> these, these psychologists trace it back to the helicopter parenting of the 1990s. <laughs> so, so the older generation's not off the hook because actually we've kind of set up the younger generation to go through this. And so they, they look at how, how creating a, a safe environment to protect our kids has actually led to that insecurity, right? It's, it's the philosophy. Do you, do you kind of change the, the road to make it right for the kids? Or do you prepare the kids for the road, right? And and so they, they look in and they say, "This is we think we have this path of peace. Peace. We th- we think we can lead our kids in a in a way by protecting them and and making them perfectly safe. And actually, it sets them up for disaster. It sets them up for a generation where where." Uh, among teenage girls, there's the highest suicide rate that there's ever been. And, And it's just like, this path that the world gives for our peace simply will not give us that peace that we long for. Look at verse 14 and 15, and it gives us a picture of the biblical path to peace, both internal peace in ourselves, but then peace relationally with others as well. Verse 14 says this, For thus says the Lord of hosts, As I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts. So again, have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah? Fear not. You hear that? Fear not. Right? That's the opposite of... Anxiety. That's the opposite of, of trying to control our world and, and protect ourselves from anything that would, w- would hamper our, our just very fragile self-esteem. And for the Christian, right, we we don't view God's love as something that's based on our present circumstances, or whether things are going our way, or whether people are being nice to us. We view God's love based on what he says to us, right? And Jesus says again and again, I know you as you are with all your your gifts and your talents and your successes and all your failures and your shadow side and the things you keep hidden. I see it all and still I love you and still I call you my child. And so, right, We are accepted because of what he has done, not what we have done. And then we desire to please him because of his great love for us. That's how we can have courage and not fear. Not because everyone agrees with us and affirms us. Not because everything is going our way, but because God has said he loves us. And then, but we, we can't just stop there. Because if we stop there, you think, oh, okay, I can live however I want, or I can live in the path of peace that the world sets for me, all the while just putting in the back of my head, oh, but God loves me. No, you know what? (laughs) We can look at the word, and we see clearly how to live this path of peace and how to live a life that's pleasing to God. And if we are trying to live in the path that the world sets for peace, all the while believing in the God and the Prince of Peace, we are going to be the most profoundly frustrated and anxious people you know. <laughs> because we have the Holy Spirit. Because God is, is, shows us our sin. He shows us the things that are not pleasing to Him. He shows us the things that are harmful to us and the relationships in our life. And then if we continue in those things, right, it just, there's just this inner frustration, this inner anxiety that grows. And we're miserable because we know the path of peace. It's offered to us freely, and still we're choosing a different way. And so that, that's why he says this, right? That God's people had provoked him to anger. They were sent into captivity. And now he's invited them back, and he said, okay, you're back in the land, And I want to offer to you peace. But you need to turn from those things that brought you into captivity in the first place. Right? You've been set free. Don't go back into that yoke of slavery. Begin to live out those things that make for peace. And here they are in verse 16. He says this. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Rendering your gates judgments that are true and make for Peace. And do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. Now notice something here. These are not crazy high, like lofty expectations. This is also, these aren't the kind of like moral, traditional family values that you might put in kind of a a conservative um worldview, right? right? These are the kind of things that generally, whoever you are, you would say, yeah, that would be nice if we had more people in our society who told the truth and didn't lie. Like when I go to fix my car, I'm looking for an honest mechanic, right? Not necessarily a Christian mechanic, just give me an honest mechanic, right? And, and, and so people look on and say, yeah, yeah, that'd be great if, if people didn't premeditate evil towards their neighbors. Like, that's the type of world we all want to live in, whatever our, our political or religious perspective is. And God is saying that, that His people, when they live out God's peace first in their hearts, right? So they do not fear. They have courage to face the world. That's that inner peace. When you have that inner peace, then you, you begin to live out that relational peace that God has called us to. And the result of that is that that God's people are are the most peaceful-centered people in the world, that they have joy and hope in what God has given. And that's amazing. And that brings us to that, that second point, the joy that comes from God's peace. We see this tension, right, right. In, the, in this text. And look in verse, um, verse 18. He says this. The word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth. They had a lot of fast, by the way. <laughs> Shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. The result of having God's peace and that quietness in our hearts in the midst of all the busyness of life is that we can be a people who celebrate. A people who have joy even when we don't see the fulfillment to God's promises and even when all of our prayers aren't answered. And we see that tension in this text and in Zechariah's time and today as well. They ask this question, right? In chapter 7, they say, should we keep fasting? Is this a time of mourning or is this a time of celebration? We're not sure. And Zechariah never answers their question. They never get the answer, right? He totally sidesteps them and says, it's not about your fasting or your feasting. It's about your heart. It's about having God's peace in your heart. It's about having his joy in your life. So he totally sidesteps it. And as I was considering this, as he, he gets this question about fasting and he responds basically with saying, there will be a time where your fasting turns to feasting. And they're still asking, is it now? Is it not now? When is it? He says, there will be a time when your fasting turns to feasting. And that reminds me of a time that Jesus had a similar question. I don't know if you remember that. John the Baptist's disciples came to Jesus, and they basically asked, why don't your, why don't your followers fast? You can uh, just listen or, or follow along. I don't, I don't know if you can read it up there. But this is in Mark um, chapter 2, verse 18. Jesus gets this question. Now, the, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Okay, so first, do you get that image? Jesus is saying he is the bridegroom. He has come to his people, and it's time to celebrate. It's a wedding feast. Now, <laughs> I don't know what the weddings are like that you go to. I know for us, when, um, when my wife and I had our wedding, it was full of feasting. It was like we had the, like the table full of cakes. We're just like we don't want just one cake; we want a table full of cakes, and we feasted, and it was wonderful. But our issue was, and it's kind of, I think this is common in American weddings. We we put too much time focusing on the beauty of the wedding, right? So it was down at old Laurelhurst Church, right? So we, we had the beautiful church and location, and everything's all set up, and there's candles everywhere. But we had that limited, like, rental space and time to use the building. And so, like, the wedding coordinator is like the, like the drill sergeant, like, get in, you do that, pictures here, pictures here, do this, in, that, right? And, and so in and the amount of time, you're just, it's just like a blur, right? And literally, people come from, from, like, they fly across the country to see your wedding, and they would love to see you, and, like, you literally get to shake their hand, right? Because so much is caught up in the scheduling of what you have to do. That, that's kind of how we have weddings. Okay, in Jesus' day, when, when, when he says, the guests have the bridegroom with them, they're going to feast and party, they took days I don't know why we don't do this. Like, let's take days to have a wedding, right? So like, yeah, they would take days. And you would get time with your friends, with your loved ones. And it was a joyful time. You're not showing up to the wedding to to fast, right? You're going to feast. And Jesus is saying, that's the type of wedding that we have. That's, That's what it means to be my follower, to be with me. We celebrate. But then he says this. ...about the wine and the wineskins. It's kind of a strange analogy. I don't know if anyone's ever used a wineskin before. Um, but basically he's saying... ...this, this skin of fasting... That, ...that God's people have practiced for generations... ...Jesus is bringing a new wine into it. And we need a new type of fasting... ...that, that followers of Christ will, will practice... ...in their day. And he says that, that new practice of fasting is based on the first coming of Jesus, and then it's based on a longing for his return. It's not just a mourning over sin. It's not just a, just, just a, uh, right, a, a brokenness over what we've done, though it, 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 it could be that. Christian fasting is primarily about longing for Jesus to return. And so there's, a, there's just a, a couple things we learned from this, from the Zechariah passage and the call of Jesus to fast. And that's that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but there's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, as it says in Romans 14. That to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, is to enter into a life of celebration. And that there is times for fasting, there's times for feasting, these are part of the rhythm of our life, but that it's all wrapped up in the joy of, of the Holy Spirit. As the, the Bible Project guys, in their Advent video, they talk about the, the joy of God's people is always a joy in the wilderness. Right? Our joy is not determined by present circumstances, but by our future destiny. Zechariah's people were still waiting for the coming of Messiah. We still long for Jesus to come and bring that shalom uh, that he has promised. But there's something more. I don't want us to think, okay, so Christian joy comes because there's a future promise. And we all know what it's like to be that kid waiting for Christmas morning. We're like, you know what you asked for, you know what you're hoping to get, and there's a big box under the the tree that kind of sounds like it might be that thing, right, that you're waiting for. Christian hope is not just out there. The book of Ephesians says that the Holy Spirit is a down payment and a guarantee of that inheritance. And so the joy of the Christian is the joy of the Holy Spirit because because we have that foretaste of that coming kingdom. As I was meditating on this, I I, I think the the Lord brought to mind in my heart one of the last verses in the whole Bible. And it's this idea that the In the book of Revelation, it says, the spirit and the bride say come. And there's this longing. What does it mean that the spirit and the bride, the bride, we're the bride, the the people of God longing for the return of the bridegroom. But the spirit and the bride say come together. It's because God has placed his spirit in you. If you are a follower of Jesus, and that spirit longs, To be with Christ, that spirit longs for him to return. And he gives you that joy in anticipation for him. And so as we long for Jesus, as we anticipate his coming, that's the Holy Spirit in us saying, yes, I want to be with Jesus. Yes, I want to know him. And and if that's the case, right, okay, that explains our feasting, right? That explains why, why Christians are called to be happy people. But I said before that there's also fasting. And Jesus said, My disciples will still fast. For Christians, there is a place for fasting because if we've been walking down that path that the world gives us of peace, if we've been consuming the things the world feeds us, if we've never been saying no to our desires, whether it's food, whether it's technology, whether it's any number of good things that God gives, you know, what? you know what's going to happen? Our hunger level for God is going to get filled up with other things. And, and when, when you're full, you're not hungry. And, and so fasting serves to, to help stir up that hunger. Right, it expresses the hunger and it stirs it up, and honestly, it just checks our heart. Where where are we with God? I know for, for me, fasting was a was a significant aspect of my life um, from the early days of being a follower of Jesus. And, and there were different seasons of, of fasting, both regular and consistent, that would help to just, as a rhythm in life, stir up my hunger. And then other times where it's like, okay, here's something big that, God is, that God's calling me to. I need to take an extra season of fasting to set aside this for prayer and, and, and discernment. And, but then over the years and different seasons, particularly just the busyness and craziness of life and family and all that, then I, I experienced how, how fasting kind of, kind of got to push to the side. And and so God challenged me even just this, uh, this last uh, fall to say, okay, how how do I get fasting back in my life? And and just a full confession, as I, as I thought about that, I thought, mm, I don't think the Lord could be telling me to do that. No, no. That, uh, I just, mm, I don't think so. I, I think he wants me to just keep feasting and, and eating whenever I want. Because you know what, particularly fasting from food is in the moment isn't always very enjoyable, right? And and so the very thought of, of rekindling consistent fasting showed me that my own heart really didn't want to give up things for God. Like I could think that, but the actual doing of it said, uh no, that's a little difficult. Or, or even when it comes to, like, right, the, the, the smartphone in, in your pocket, right? Which, for some of us, has, is we, we spend more time on it than eating. And it is, is more of a, a felt need than even food, right? Some of us skip meals. Some of us fast from food to spend time on our phones. And so even the thought of, like, what does it look like to have a weekly Sabbath? Not just set aside from work. But set aside from technology, set aside from those things that my mind goes to, right? We, we all have the that, that neutral gear that our mind goes into. And we have the places our mind goes first thing when we wake up in the morning and the last thing going through our mind when we go to bed. And and, and when we check ourselves and we're like, those things are, honestly, they're not set on God. And they actually lead to my anxiety. They lead to my oh, who has liked my post or who has noticed my picture or, I mean, these kind of things, Like, just no wonder we're schizophrenic, right? And, and so taking that time to be like, okay, I'm, I'm saying no to these perfectly fine desires on a weekly basis to be able to set my heart on God. And it, it's, it's amazing. I, I think I've, <laughs> a friend of mine once said, uh, there was a, a, a debate uh, that, that he was having with some other uh, Christians about, um, okay, I'm going to say it. I, I used I did pastoring in Hawaii, and, and in my hometown, um, marijuana is just, like, everywhere, which now in Oregon, it's everywhere here, too. Um, but anyway, literally, we would have these Q&A sessions in our, in, our church, in our church services where we would just let people ask whatever they wanted, and every single time... Being a Christian, smoking pot was like top of everyone's list. That was just the world that I lived in, and and he was this guy. He was an old hippie, right? He had he had been through that his whole life, and he would he would he made the point. He says he, he says you don't know you're addicted to pot until you've quit for at least a year. And and he just it was speaking from his experience, like it takes being on the other side of an addiction, being on the other side. Of, of having fasted, of having said no to a desire that you've always said yes to to realize the control that it's had on your life. So that wasn't in my manuscript, that's free. Maybe that was for you, I don't know. But, but we, fasting has a purpose to help us find freedom um, in so many ways. And it is a path to peace that God has given. Last point. How we share joy to the world when we know His peace in our hearts, when we practice His peace by doing justice in the world, and when we're happy. <laughs> while these do, do we do these things, and even while people don't like us and resist us, and things don't go our way, people notice. People notice, and they want to be a part of it. Now, look at this last section, starting in verse twenty. Right? He says, people shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities, Right, saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. So that's God's people. God's people will start seeking him and they'll say to one another, let's go pursue God together. And then it goes on and says, and then, and then, ten men from the nations of every tongue will take a hold of the robe of a Jew saying, let us go with you. For we have heard that God is with you. Or like we like to remember in the, in the uh, Christmas season, that God is Emmanuel. It's that same idea, God is with you. Notice that God's people are first seeking God before the nations, before, before the world, before other people come along and say, can we join you? If you're not going anywhere, no one's gonna follow you I'm going nowhere, right? You, you have to be seeking God first. You have to, and, and it's, it's a community. They call to each other, let's seek God together. And then the world notices and says, I want to be where those people are. I want to go where those people are going. This is a, and it's a picture of leadership, just basic leadership. And we, we say it lots of different ways, right? We may teach what we know, but we reproduce what we are. More is caught than taught. Show me, don't tell me. Or you cannot lead people where you have not gone yourself. Right? We say it all different ways. God is calling us to seek him first, to be those peaceful people in our hearts and in our relationships, to be those joyful people so that we have somewhere to lead others. One of my my favorite psalms uh, pictures this, Psalm, from Psalm 34. It just says this, Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let's exalt his name together. The worship leader is actually the lead worshiper. The teacher is actually the lead student. When we start in that humble place, when we start getting our own kind of affairs in order, right, we can walk and live out that way of Jesus for the world. And it, and it enters that promise. And they will say, I've heard, I've seen that God is among you. Let me go with you. And so my prayer for us as a church is that that would define us. That we, that we would have such an unanxious presence in this city. That we would be people that do justice. That our good works are not primarily based around our traditional morality. There's a place for that, and that's another conversation. But that, as it says in these texts, that these are public acts of good. These are are people who walk in integrity so that the world notices. And people see that, and they say, I want to be a part of that. Let's pray and ask God to do that among us. Lord Jesus, we want your joy. We want your peace, and that peace doesn't come uh, like how the world gives and offers. And, and so we ask you to make us and form us to be the people uh, of the Emmanuel, the people uh, of, who have God with us, shaping us and changing us. And, and we know that when you are lifted up, you will draw all nations to yourself. So please, Lord Jesus, would you do that among us? In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen.
0: We desire to be formed by the word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.